0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: The sort of utopian future of the digital payment space is that you can send a payment as quickly and easily across borders as you send an email. It's free, it's instant, you can send it anywhere in the world. That world is not a world in which you're willing to pay 2.5%, in which merchants are willing to accept that MasterCard and Visa take 2.5% of each transaction, that they then remit to wealthy Americans via credit card air miles and things. The credit card companies are sort of very threatened by this potential utopia, and the banks also make a lot of money from that business. You know, they share revenues with the card providers. You know, it's it's definitely a threat to both of those sort of big financial players.
0: The Economist magazine's special report on the future of banking. Do please stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Coming soon to Full Disclosure, Brad Stone, author of Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Full Disclosure podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link FullDRadio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend this show to friends and fam. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from Manhattan is Alice Fullwood. She is the Wall Street correspondent of The Economist magazine. The feature package is the special report on the future of banking. How are you?
1: I'm really well, thanks. How are you
0: doing? I'm okay, thanks. I don't know where to start with this because there are so many meaning of life, cosmic questions that I go to bed at night and I ponder what is the point of a cryptocurrency or a Dogecoin or a Govcoin? We are in this period of, especially in the States, of record fiat currency with the Federal Reserve and in many arguments, in many respects, inflating the currency to the extent that younger people are looking for new risk assets such as NFTs and everything. And so let me just shut myself up and ask you kind of what is the point of money? What does money mean in the year 2021?
1: Right. So- I mean, you're running into the same problem that I'm sure a lot of our readers are, which is, you know, this idea of a digital currency. When you hear that, people assume you're talking about Bitcoin or stable coins or any of the sort of whole realm of decentralized finance that has um, that has sort of grown over the past uh, decade or so. But, you know, what we try to do with the special report is, is actually get to the sort of heart of the question that you just asked, you know, what is money? What does it mean um, for something to be money? And And what will money look like in the future? And When people talk about what money is, they usually um, go back to those sort of three facets of money uh, that make it useful um, in society. And so that's it. You know, it's a means of exchange. You can pay for things using it. Um, it's the unit of account, so it's sort of how prices of things are listed um and sort of accounted for. And it's also a store of value. So money is not that useful if it just immediately loses its value. Uh, see what's happened in Venezuela and things. And, you know, a lot of the new digital currencies uh that have cropped up, like Bitcoin, don't fulfill all of those things. You can't use them to pay for things everywhere yet, and they're not very stable, so they're not not a great sort of unit of account. Um, but Increasingly, people do think of them as sort of genuinely a store of value and something that can hold on to value over long periods of time.
0: Well, the interesting, the interesting thing that has been ex- truly accelerated by the COVID pandemic was the demise of cash. I could say, I don't know if I'm speaking on behalf of the median you know, US consumer, uh, Western consumer, even if you go to South Asia or Southeast Asia, where mobile wallets have truly been adapted, but I, I largely take cash out for the barber shop. Several times a year, and that's about it. I carry, you know, reluctantly carry some credit cards clipped to the back of my iPhone. I try to use mobile payments, frictionless payments, wherever it is accepted, be it the drugstore, or the grocery store, or the pizzeria. Uh, cash has truly had an accelerated demise over the past two years.
1: Yes. So, and, you know, this is one of the things that is prompting central banks to look very seriously at the idea of issuing digital money because cash, um, Although it seems sort of like archaic and quite quaint now, um, you know, like you say, I basically just use it for tipping my hairdresser, um, and would would never carry any any physical cash around um, if I could help it. It is the only sort of direct link that we have to official government money. So. You know, the, the dollar bills that you carry are physically printed by the central bank and they're backed by the sort of full faith and credit of the US government. And the same is true of all sort of money across the world, uh, paper money across the world. The digital money that we use for for transactions now is your bank deposits. So, you know, when you use a credit card or even, you know, a credit card linked to Apple Pay that you use digitally now, what ultimately happens is sort of digital deposits shuffle around between, you know, JP Morgan Chase or Bank of America. Mm. Um but those, you know, digital private bank deposits are actually sort of not explicitly backed necessarily by the government. Um, there are sort of implicit guarantees with things like deposit insurance, but what they really are is a promise to pay the person who's holding that money out in physical cash. So, you know, you can go down to your bank and and they have to give you the official printed money of the government if you demand it. And in a world where cash is no longer used for transactions, it loses all of its potency, its money, loses that sort of means of exchange purpose. And then it becomes sort of very interesting to think about what would happen um, if there was a banking crisis, for example, because if cash wasn't what you could use, you know, cash is the safest asset, it's issued by the government, you know, where would people run to um, is, is the question that sort of a lot of central bankers are thinking about. And the answer that they're coming up with is, well, we need to provide them a digital form of cash to run to.
0: I still can't get my head around it. And I imagine if you're trying to make the elevator pitch of this story to other people, it's already a currency that's backed by the full faith and credit of the US government. But the interesting thing that you point out in your report is that there are these very flawed intermediaries, namely the banks that used to be the too big to fail banks. They're now even bigger than they were Mm -hmm. in the throes of the financial crisis and that you're dependent on backstopping them. I mean, you go to the bank, to demand your cash you're not going to a government window if you're an individual uh, retail bank customer, and so this is a way of cutting out the middleman effectively by by you know printing digital coins. Is it like the old savings bonds that I would get for my bar mitzvah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, it's, although we don't think of cash as that useful anymore, because no one wants to use it, because we have all these sort of fancy digital solutions, you know, there are a lot of great things about cash, which is that anyone can use it, you know, a tourist can come into the country, and they don't have to set up like a local bank account. Uh, to be able to pay for things here. Um, You know, even if you're very, very poor, if you get your hands on a dollar bill, you can then use it to pay for things. And most sort of digital solutions are limited in their scope. You know, it's a select group of people, even in the States, you know, the number of people that are unbanked, I think is around sort of 7 million people, which is a really sort of significant minority. So if you think that cash is disappearing, um, and that businesses won't want to accept it anymore, you know, how do you provide sort of a means of payment that people can use to to carry out everyday transactions? And, you know, this is a live issue in the States, but it's even more uh, sort of extreme in places like Sweden, because um, in Sweden, there have actually already been a lot of lawsuits where the courts have decided that businesses cannot be forced to accept cash. So if they don't want to accept mm. cash as means of payment, uh, they don't have to. They can exclusively use digital digital methods. And so you have to, you know, that the Central Bank really has to come up with something that every Swedish person can use. And probably sort of any tourist in Sweden can use as well to pay for things. And, you know, it's maybe not a problem that you have or, or I have because we have bank accounts. And well, no, Alice, we, and did things, see, but- we
0: did see a controversy. We saw a controversy a couple of years ago. I don't know if it was Sweet Green or one of the restaurant yeah. chains decided to open up new locations that were no cash and it actually makes a lot of sense from a business owner's perspective you're not paying the armored guards to come in and you know cash has frictional costs right and so mm-hmm. and so you're willing to tolerate whatever vig the credit card company is going to take just for ease of convenience right, right. Uh, you, you don't have to worry about shrink, what do they call it shrinkage or uh, managers or assistant managers or workers taking certain bills but then that that does point to uh, you know certain city councils chafed at that notion that saying a person doesn't have a smartphone or a credit card; they're not privy to your restaurant. They can't come in and and be patronized. It has a certain anti-democratic quality to it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I think uh, Sweetgreen now is they they're forced; they've been forced to accept cash now, uh, but they clearly don't like it. Uh, they sort of encourage you to use your your card if at all possible. Yeah, so I mean, but it is it is it becomes a sort of much more complex challenge. And the the way that sort of central banks are thinking about this and uh, and approaching this is by saying, okay, so we probably are going to need to make it possible for people to open up accounts with the central bank. And in those accounts, they'll hold this sort of digital cash themselves. Um, but, you know, that that is a totally different product and idea to physical cash, it's sort of much more similar to bank accounts. And so it raises all these questions about, well, are central banks going to have to do like the know your customer onboarding? How are they going to do that? Probably potentially through sort of third parties at arm's length, but do those third parties have to be banks? Maybe not. They could be sort of anyone.
0: Do you end up do you end up reinventing the bank effectively if you were to cut out the middleman and have a direct relationship between the central bank and the retail customer? Right. The, the central bank is not adept at the, the, the back office, the web provisioning. I mean, if you Look at how uh, healthcare.gov, for example, was provisioned. Uh, this is this is the central problem. But there are a lot of distortions, and there's a certain amount of you. You illustrate the friction, the cuts taken, the frustration. Uh, it, it should be a great thing in that banks take your deposits and have this privileged opportunity to lend among themselves at this privileged rate. But there's a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction with traditional banking, especially among younger people who are trying to opt out. To that extent, Alice, you know the big tech companies loom large mm-hmm. when I read your special report on the future of banking. If you talk about network effects, even the unbanked decidedly, if you were to pull them, many still have a smartphone in their pocket. Many have a relationship with, let's say, Apple Pay or Facebook or Amazon or one of these players or PayPal that already kind of cuts out the middleman of the bank, if you will. I wonder, what is it uh, about these big tech firms? They're certainly well-capitalized. Many of them are worth handful of them are worth more than a trillion dollars have hundreds of billions of dollars of cash on their balance sheets what's stopping them from becoming banks outright or having a bank business is it is it a kind of a subpar return compared to what they're used to earning in their core knitting
1: yeah so the business model that the sort of big tech giants use is it's just a sort of it's a totally different way of sort of imagining the provision of financial services to a person. So, you know, the big, the big tech companies that we think about when we think about them sort of becoming massive payment platforms are your Alipay's sort of Ant Financial in China, Grab in Singapore, Gojek in Indonesia, Mercado Page which is an e-commerce site in Brazil that's, that's doing this as well. And you're, you're seeing it to an extent now with PayPal in America. And basically what what they do is they say okay so we provide a service to you we provide your chat messaging or your e-commerce or your ride hailing something that you do every day and because you already interact with that business every single day you know why shouldn't they then be you know embed the payments in that service and once you've embedded payments you know this is something that banks discovered 50 years ago but once you start sort of being the provider of someone's payment solutions, then it's easy to become the place that they want to hold their deposits, they want to get a loan, they want to get investment advice, they want to get insurance products. And that's what you've seen with Ant, its trajectory. It's become this sort of huge financial behemoth power player by providing all the things that banks provide, but through this payment platform. And the really sort of interesting and powerful dynamic about the payment platforms is that, as you said, they do have these network effects. So when you decide to join a bank, you know, you don't particularly care if your mates are all with the same bank because that's not been particularly valuable whereas you you really care if all of your friends are using the same payment platform provider. You know, Venmo is only useful because all of your friends are on it. Sure. And so you have these network effects and the value of joining a network um grows exponentially with the sort of number of users that it has. And what you've seen happen in China is, you know, One or two giant providers of these things have amassed all of this enormous power in money and their money and financial system. And that, you know, this is the other thing that's making central banks really uncomfortable. Because although people talk about banks being too big to fail and, you know, they're these huge institutions, banking is actually quite fragmented compared with tech. You have four big banks in America and a thousand small ones. You have the sort of similar setups elsewhere, though they tend to have. You know, fewer absolutely tiny ones, but you have one provider of you know social media, or you have one provider of you know, I guess e-commerce with 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 Amazon. Um, and the idea that you could have just one private provider of payment solutions to an economy is something that sort of terrifies central bankers, and they don't. They're very uncomfortable with the sort of concentration of power that might go hand in hand with that transition happening here.
0: But here's Alice I, reading it. They're not they're not uncomfortable with the concentration of power of of eight too big to fail banks that are now maybe four or five.
1: It's different, though, because you can, you know, say you're a JP Morgan Chase customer and you're unhappy with JP Morgan Chase. You can shut your account and walk down the street and go to Citibank. And that's not, you know, tons of competition, but it's 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 some competition. If. Facebook issues DM, and DM becomes the predominant way that you pay for things, you know, your morning coffee and paying your mates and paying your barber and and everyone, and you don't like Facebook's DM for some reason, you know, it's much more likely that in that world, there actually wouldn't be another solution for you to go to. Um, It's a a winner-takes-all. Banking is not winner-takes-all. Sure, there are economies of scale. Sure, there are big players. But it's not winner-takes-all in the same way that tech is.
0: You know, I'd like to read from your story on the future of banking. The future is that uh, supercharging Alipay's growth, Alipay and Alibaba, it is more than 1 billion active users and handled 16 trillion in payments in 2019, nearly 25 times more than PayPal, which is the dominant player in the United States. A competitor arrived in 2013 with Tencent, which added a payment function to WeChat, China's main messaging app. Together, the two processed some 90% of mobile transactions in China. And now here are the the cost implications. The first blow to banks is that both companies earn as little as 0.1% of each transaction, less than banks do from debit cards. Interchange fees around the world have tumbled because of such firms. You quoted a UBS banker and saying it was very lucrative for fintechs to come in and compete these fees away. Mm-hmm. In Indonesia, you point out they've fallen from two points to just uh, you know, 0.70. Mm-hmm. And that is uh that that is something that has to worry banks and credit card providers and i don't know visa american express the world over because it used to be the the network effects were the credit card that you had in your wallet but now it's the app that you have on your phone
1: right so you know the sort of utopian future of the digital payment space is that you can send a payment as quickly and easily across borders as you send an email it's free it's instant. You can send it anywhere in the world. That world is not a world in which you're willing to pay two and a half percent, on which merchants are willing to accept, accept that you know Mastercard and Visa take two and a half percent of each transaction, hmm. that they then remit to you know wealthy Americans via credit card air miles and things, and. So you know the credit card companies, you know, well, I guess the the sort of big payment platform interchange um, companies like Visa and Mastercard are sort of very threatened by this this you know potential utopia. And the banks also make a lot of money from that business. You know they share they share those revenues with the the card providers. So yeah, I mean yes, you're, you're completely correct. You know it's it's definitely a threat to both of those sort of big big um, financial players at the moment.
0: Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Alice Fulwood, the Wall Street editor of The Economist. Her special report in the May eighth issue, The Economist, is on the future of banking. She covers uh, she casts quite a net, uh, covering fintech, uh, the traditional banks, uh, we're developing economy players that are suddenly taking over the world. I mean, Alice, I walk into a CVS, and on the credit card LCD screen, it doesn't just say Visa, Mastercard, American Express, or Apple Pay. It also includes Alipay and Chinese characters. I mean, the, I, I wonder how U.S. bank regulators feel about a, a player like an Alipay coming into the United States, which is so dominant in China, or a Tencent and these messaging apps that, that, that you know, you, you also talk about MercadoLibre in South America. Uh, they're not just dumb messaging apps. They're messaging apps backed with significant banking capabilities.
1: Right. So, and actually there, there was, I think Donald Trump tried to AliPay and WeChat Pay at some point. Um, I'm not sure how that that went in the end, but um, you know they. I mean, I guess the the sort of sanguine the sanguine thing to think first is AliPay is not trying to win American customers, at least not yet. You know, I actually downloaded the app myself and um, and used it to pay for something at Walgreens, but it was impossible. You know, you had to use Google Translate and screenshots to to figure out what on earth was going on. It was you know, it I actually couldn't link my US bank. I had to get sort of a mate to send me some 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 uh, cash to to actually be able to use it so you know it's 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 not as though they're they're trying to go global but you know it's not yet as though they're trying to go global and the the point about these sort of payment platforms is that the network effects that they have that we've talked about you know they don't stop at borders this is why Facebook is sort of such an interesting um, iteration of this is because you know it has 2 billion users worldwide if they issued this sort of dollar linked token you could see a lot of people adopting not only a new payment provider which you know poses loads of interesting sort of problems for for cross border privacy you know are the indonesian central bank happy that indonesian people are using a sort of payment provider with its servers located in china you know probably not they probably shouldn't be but at the same time you know if you if you have these sort of payment platforms rolling over borders then you could also have currencies you know if there's a sort of banking crisis in Turkey or you know Turkey sacked its its central bank head and the currency fell through the floor and you know emerging market currency crisis are pretty common throughout history if DM exists in the future why wouldn't you switch to using dollars when that happened you know it's a safer more stable currency um and you you might find it you know as easy as generating a QR code on your phone to start accepting and, and taking payments in dollars. So it also, this sort of new digital money world has so many sort of interesting implications for which currencies we'll use and the sort of monetary sovereignty of nations.
0: So the monetary sovereignty of nature is when you talk about DM, I mean, this is Facebook, which kind of is definitely, you think about WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook message, the the way it could kind of bolt on global kind of money fungibility, maybe that's dollar denominated or whatever it is, that's something that could really go behind the back, behind the door of governments, whether they're totalitarian or or apolitical or whatever it is, and their banking system. If they want to stop money flows and stop withdrawals and everything, there's only so much they could do. I guess they could shut down the internet.
1: <laughs> yeah. So- it's a really interesting problem for central bankers because, on the one hand, you know Facebook is Facebook's DM is probably the closest thing you we've seen to that potential utopian world I talked about, where it's as easy to send a payment as it is an email, and you can send it to anyone in the world. But the idea, so so it's it's hard for them to say say no to that, right? It's hard, you know, given the system that we currently have, where you know a lot of people are unbanked, interchange fees are very high all of the frictions that are involved in payments and, and banking today, you know, it's hard to not as a, you know, as a, in in America, you know, a capitalist country where you want sort of private sector solutions to these problems, you know, this is D- Facebook coming along saying, well, we'll compete them all away, you know, it'll be done. And that's a really interesting proposition. But at the same time, it does um, potentially cede sort of all control over the money supply to a private institution, because, you know, you, th- you think about, so, so Facebook is holding all of these dollars to back DM um where is it holding them is it holding them in, in treasuries is it holding them in bank accounts if it's holding them in bank accounts what can banks do with them you know the whole system that we've developed through which all lending is funded in economies is predicated on the fact that we all hold our deposits with banks and they make loans and they make loans to small businesses and they make loans for mortgages and if you unravel that system by creating a world in which suddenly you know everyone's holding all of their money in in dm tokens or in central bank digital currencies, then you know what happens to the provision of all lending in economies. It's just, it's just huge, huge, huge questions. Um, which is why you know so far people have been pretty cautious about this. DM was, I mean, the the original incarnation of DM was a basket of currencies, which was immediately squashed by regulators. But even the sort of more tepid version, where they're just linking it to the dollar, still raises like a, a ton of really, really difficult questions.
0: Full Disclosure. Stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any social media stream you'd like at Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Alice Fullwood. She is the Wall Street correspondent at The Economist. Special report on uh, May 8th issue is on the future of banking. We're talking about really the nexus of old, stodgy, government-regulated banking and these newfangled Kind of companies that started off as as uh, pure internet plays that realized that they so had the foot in the door in the smartphone here abroad uh, that they could just kind of add on bolt on uh, payments as functionality. Uh, tell me, talk to me about PayPal. I think I covered it during its IPO back in two thousand and two or something. It was a blockbuster IPO, and then eBay acquired them. It used to be just a curiosity, I think, for eBay users to pay one another. But you noted in your story that its value has almost doubled over the past year to more than 310 billion dollars making it the world's most valuable payment platform.
1: Right, so it's, you know, even more valuable than all of these emerging markets ones that we've talked about. And I, you know, I think it's because because PayPal is is, you know, it's it's got 377 million users or something now and it is really threatening to do in America potentially what Ant did in China or what Gra- Grab is doing in Singapore, which is, you know, as you say, it it started out as this sort of okay, this is a weird way to pay for things online, and I only use it for eBay, and it's now Im- embedding itself. You know, you'll you'll see the option to pay using PayPal a lot more on other sites now. Um, so I do, yeah, yeah. It's embedding itself at that point as that point of sale transaction. It's it's easier to use PayPal, say, than to use you know, type in your credit card details every time and. Well, investors are are probably, when they're sort of valuing PayPal so handsomely, probably betting that it can do the same thing, or at least to an extent, the same thing that Ant did in China, in the States, which is you start off by just being this payments provider, and then you, you know, launch into offering um, personalized loans or investments or insurance and things. Um, and that's how sort of Ant basically just prints money. It takes fees on all of those products that it now sells to people. Um, and... Yeah, the, the, the well, time something. out, Alice.
0: Explain explain this for me and my listeners. Whether I'm talking about PayPal or Apple Pay, I cannot have either relationship without a bank account. Right. Or a credit card. Right. So I'm still enthralled to the big regulated financial institutions and the Federal Reserve banking system. Right. It's not like these guys have gone off with their balance sheets and and um, you know, uh, Wall Street's ardor for them and said we are Independently, going to facilitate from soup to nuts these transactions. Like you know, go go back to Apple Pay. Apple had a very valuable foot in the door. I know I keep using that metaphor, but mm-hmm. that that you know, for uh, iTunes, it had it had a record number of credit card numbers, and then it was very easy to transition that to Apple Pay when more and more merchants were accepting this, and they had thumbprint recognition, and now it's facial recognition. But in both cases. You still have to put in some sort of credit card number or direct, you know, bank account or debit debit card number.
1: Right. And so this is why, you know, you can only get so far with like the tech provision of of financial services. You you come up to a point where, you know, if you don't have a balance sheet, you can't well, if you're not a bank, you can't hold consumer deposits. Like that is basically the regulated meaning of a bank. It's that you hold on to to customer deposits. Um and no one else is allowed to do that. And if you want to do that, you have to get a banking license and you know if you don't have the balance sheet to make loans then you you can't you might know who to lend to you know that's the that's the edge that tech companies have right they have all this information about their users and they know okay you're a small business and you do $10,000 of revenue every month i could probably give you a loan and you know i know that you're going to make that back and it's it's fine so so they 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 have those kinds of advantages um but they're lacking balance sheets and so there are two ways you can you can go about sort of solving that problem one is that you um partner with um banks or you sort of sell uh you're you're essentially the front end to a bank right so ant is selling all of its lending products off to banks the customer deposits its whole it holds ultimately held on bank balance sheets in the end um they're just sort of only ant knows who owns them the banks really don't apple
0: apple's credit card was linked to goldman sachs right nominally right. right yeah
1: so so you still need the banks to do the like very back end plumbing. I guess one point to make about that, though, is that that's not the stuff that banks make them their money on, right? The return on equity for, for the fluffy sort of fee generation sales products, the things like um, selling someone an, an investment is sort of orders of magnitude higher than it is for just the balance sheet holding of assets and lending. Um, I think the sort of McKinsey sort of stats on this. So that the stuff that the fintechs are skimming off the top is like 20% ROE and the balance sheet stuff that the banks still have to do is something closer to five, basically. So, so you they know, don't
0: want to dilute the fin- you know, Fintech and fin generally return on equity, the very high standard, very richly yeah. valued tech companies don't want to kind of dumb down their profitability by going into the, the requisite things that old established banks have to do as kind of table stakes to be in banking generally.
1: Right. But some of them some of them have decided that they would like a balance sheet because they don't want to have to partner with banks forever. So Grab is an example of that. It's a ride-hailing service in Singapore. It now does payments and it's asked for a banking license. Um, so some of them sort of potentially will become banks. But I guess the sort of more radical future that you can think about when you consider the idea that like central banks might start providing digital currencies themselves is that, you know, you would be able to link potentially your central bank digital currency account to your PayPal and pay for stuff, and it would never go through the banking system. Now, you need a sort of a few steps to get to that world. But it's it's a possible world in a way that I don't think it's ever been before to conceive of payments completely outside the banking system ever touching them.
0: Here's the thing, I, I did wonder when Apple Pay finally came online several years ago, and it was a very slow and sputtering kind of rollout. It was hardly ubiquitous, but now it it it, it, it by and large is, but I'm kind of indifferent to it. It's a it's yep. a nice convenient thing to not have to carry credit cards and to have a nice, neat record of my transactions. What's stopping Apple from controlling the entirety of the transaction? For example, they said that the problem was the node, right? They had to have uh, merchants have that one credit card reader that mm-hmm. accepts some combination of, I don't know, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Diners Club, Alipay. But an Apple, it's got such product lust, it has it's it's got such prestige, it's so ubiquitous, and its users purportedly are so in love with the brand and, and it's an extension of them. Why couldn't they've just released a dumb terminal or a dumb, you know, Apple node for stores to be able to accept Apple Pay and forget about providing loans, forget about reserve requirements and the discount window, but just being a Payment to payment provider. Again, when you illustrate the thick cut that credit card companies take, you would think that merchants would be very amenable to a player that's getting its profit base elsewhere coming in and just charging a sliver of that.
1: Yeah, it is it is kind of surprising because, you know, Apple Pay takes um, I think Apple Pay has about a ten percent market share of payments in the States. Whereas as you said sort of earlier, from Alipay and and WeChat Pay have have ninety percent of mobile of the transactions in China. So, you know, everyone in China uses their phone now. The technology they use to do that is 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 different though. They use QR codes. So, you know, I mean, we probably mm. have become more familiar with them this year because no restaurants want to give us menus anymore, right? They all give, of course, you, the, of course. They all give you the QR code. code to scan. And and so but that's how they do it. You know, the merchants all they have to do is generate a QR code on their phone in the, the Alipay app. Um, and they can accept transactions that way. You know, you don't need any of any hardware. Um, I actually, this is a question that I I actually genuinely don't know the answer to. I don't know why someone hasn't launched a QR code system for the States. Um, I wonder whether it's, you know, it's just that all all the sort of big incumbent players don't want to sort of compete things down to zero yet. You know, Apple takes its cut, a sort of very handsome cut of the transaction as well when you use Apple Pay. But, you know, I genuinely don't know why no one's begun to, to use that sort of QR code system. It's possible that we just sort of at a point of inertia where everyone has the hard tech now, and it's too difficult to get everyone to change um, without coordinating people in some way.
0: Sure. And Alice, it's not a household name yet, but you did uh, illustrate that Stripe, which is a business payment provider, has now valued it uh, about $100 billion, making it the largest private tech company in America. Tell us what they do and what this other player in the Netherlands that some people on Wall Street are whispering about.
1: Yes. Yeah, so it's almost deliberate that Stripe isn't a household name, though, because they, you know, they are, they're the B2B sort of provider of this. So essentially what what they do it's called a an API an application program interface and the way that you describe that is it's sort of like a plug and it plugs into say a small business's website so that they can collect payments for things and then it also plugs into all of the the banks and the financial services on the other end and sort of their whole goal is to make both of those processes as sort of frictionless as possible, so to make it as easy as possible for the small business to start collecting payments and also to make it as easy as possible for that small business to open a bank account, get a loan, get you know any of the things that they that they that they might need and you know it's it sounds like quite simple it's it, it is actually a very complicated problem to solve, and you know they've done it extremely well and have made it sort of so seamless for these small businesses to to do all of these things. That's why they're sort of growing so quickly and they're now sort of attracting sort of bigger businesses and things. Um, and so yeah, that but it's it is one of those things where you've probably never heard of Stripe, but you've almost certainly used it. Um, I think they reckon that something like sort of 90% of people who who do online transactions have eventually sort of used Stripe through some system of of, mm. of payment collection. Um, but you know, they're not trying to be at least yet they're not trying to be like a provider of anything directly for for retail
0: use illustrate if you will venmo for us is that kind of the 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 big too big to fail banks in the united states their way of kind of teaming up and inoculating themselves from disruption
1: well so venmo actually it wasn't sort of initially partnered officially with the banks i'm not sure if it, it is now but it, you know essentially venmo is is a way of doing instant payments that the banks for a while didn't provide they're now doing something with with zelle which um which is another way of sort of potentially doing zelle, payments
0: z-e-l-l-e
1: yeah z-e-l-l-e um yep. but it's only sort of certain of the of the larger banks but you know i mean i guess venmo they provide a, a you know they've created a platform on which there are a lot of people and they've all linked their bank accounts or their credit or debit cards and they use them to pay each other and the transaction you know Is instantaneous and irreversible so it doesn't have any of the sort of protections of of credit card shopping but um it became very popular because there there was sort of no way to do instant payments in america before before venmo came along it is interesting to think about sort of what they'll what they'll do next they haven't as yet tried to scale up in the way that sort of ant and other other payment platforms have
0: Full disclosure. I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Alice Fullwood. She is Wall Street correspondent, The Economist. The special report is The Future of Banking in the May 8th issue. Uh, you know, I'm looking at your sidebar, Time is Cheap. Banks do less banking with interest rates at zero. But I kind of wanted to get in a couple of dad quips in the interim. One, one great sidebar that you might have in the future is lament, you know, shed a tear for uh, the pickpocket in New York. I mean, some stories have been written about doormen. You used to be able to take a cab from downtown to you know the upper east side or something and pay with a twenty and then give your doorman the change. But everybody seems to pay with credit cards or with their iPhones right now and kind of, you know, touchless transactions. But I also think about pickpockets. Uh, if you're in Times Square or if you're in Barcelona and if people aren't carrying cash, it's not worth it. And there was also this episode of the Sopranos, which was really prescient on this in the early aughts. I think two of the two of the gangsters tried to shake down this new coffee shop where a pork butchery or something in New Jersey used to be. And the area was so gentrified. And the manager of the coffee shop's like, guys, every last cent of every transaction is monitored. We don't really carry much cash in this store. And they leave the coffee shop kind of lamenting the good old times of cash. It does, it does have me thinking about future sidebars. But in the meantime, you do shed a, a tear, oddly enough, for banks that uh, are frustrated with this persistently low interest rate environment, Alice. I'm thinking about since the turn of the century uh, at least half of the years i believe have had emergency low interest rate policy and you think that would be all gravy for the banks because they can uh pay borrowers nothing and turn around and be you know uh, issue mortgages and everything and collect a fat net interest margin but you illustrate that in fact this is a very frustrating period for them
1: yeah so it is actually you know <sighs> Initially as interest rates fall it's not necessarily bad for banks right like you think when interest rates come down uh that tends to push up asset prices which tends to be good for banks and you know it's it's not sort of all necessarily bad to begin with but in general banks find it hard to pass on rate cuts below a certain point so for example you know the the rate that you get on your deposit is never quite the same rate that the central bank is paying the bank usually it's a bit lower so once interest rates get down to sort of 1% or below, then banks can't really cut deposit rates on depositors very much anymore um, unless they're sort of willing to go negative. And that's a sort of very difficult um, decision for for banks to, to make. Um, some in Europe have been forced to now. You know, I inter- interviewed um, Christian Sewing, the boss of Deutsche Bank, and he said, you know, within the last year, he'd eventually sort of, you know, bitten the bullet and told all of his um, – his staff to charge negative interest rates on deposits and they hadn't lost all of their customers, but it was, you know, there was a lot of backlash from all of his corporate bankers and things. Um, but you know, it's harder to cut deposit rates than it is to cut lending rates. And if lending rates are quite competitive, then, you know, it actually can be, be quite a difficult situation for banks, especially if it persists. Um, and you know, sure, shed a tear for the banks, uh, if, if, if you like, um, the bigger problem, I think, is that that this can have some sort of perverse effects on you know the attempts that monetary policy makers um policymakers are trying to have on stimulating the economy right so you know you you think of uh rate cuts as being meted out by central bankers in a time of economic slump or crisis you know they're trying to stimulate lending get the economy going again um unfortunately if the banks all are struggling uh, because rate cuts are sort of down to zero, then you can end up sort of hurting the banks in such a way that they, they don't lend as much and you can have these sort of rather unintended sort of consequences at, at really low levels. And this is a, a bit of a problem in the States because interest rates have got down very low, but it's a much, much bigger problem in Europe and, you know, especially Japan, where interest rates have been low or well Which, below zero which begs ranges. the which
0: begs the question when I read your story. Yes, there's always the case of Japan and 30 years of just persistently low, very low negative interest rates and pushing on a string. But shouldn't shouldn't a a tech disruptor kind of salivate on at this net interest margin opportunity? So I walk into my bank in the rare occasion that I need a cashier's check or uh, uh, you know something notarized, and it feels like in this environment, like they're doing me a favor, right? Uh, because there's nothing to be gained in this relationship. I'm already collecting nothing for my uh, deposits. If I need a loan, mortgage, I guess they're happy to underwrite a mortgage, but there's still all these other people out there that are complaining that they're, one, not getting enough for their deposits, and two they're unable to get a loan. Isn't there a player? I mean, you you have covered Kiva and some of the other players out there that have come in and pooled together peer-to-peer loans. Isn't there a way of... I, I imagine that tech entrepreneurs must be saying there's a way for us to swoop in and pay a higher deposit and also uh, turn around and loan this money to a credit-worthy pool of people and kind of start taking share away from the bankers who are just kind of asleep at the switch.
1: Yeah. So you have to be careful with what you think people can do with customer deposits, because essentially the defining feature of a bank is that they're allowed to hold consumer deposits. And that's what means that they are, you know, insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission and and, and all those kinds of things. So if you want to hold customer deposits and do that maturity transformation, that sort of turning short-term deposits into long-term loans, you do have to be a bank. There are ways that you can sort of, you can you can do the sort of front-end provision of things. Um, so for example, like I uh, might have like a money market fund account with someone like Betterment, which is like a tech player. And, you know, they, it looks as though I'm holding my deposit with Betterment, but I'm actually holding it with a bank, ultimately. You know, that, that sort of pure net interest income play where you say, okay, I want to take deposits and make loans. Like actually, if you want to do that, you do have to be a bank and you do have to get a banking license. And so the frictions of all of the sort of regulations that you need to sign up for and the barriers to entry of doing that kind of thing and the capital compliance, um, you know, all of that is what what gets in the way of that potentially sort of fiercer competition there. Um, But in terms of like who can make you loans or, or, or whether tech can disrupt the sort of provision of loans to people if if you, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this space. So the collection of sort of data by, you know, AI and machine learning firms who say that they can generate a better sort of insight into whether or not you'll pay your loan back than you might get from the traditional credit scoring process. There's a sort of a lot of innovation going on there. And actually with mortgages, for example, Rocket Mortgage is the biggest provider of mortgages in America, and it's not a bank; it's it's a sort of financing company, and they basically have like a really nice, slick website. They have invested a lot in customer service, and um, a lot of people like that. And but what they do is because they don't hold on to those mortgages. Um, ultimately, those mortgages that they create, they they sort of issue them. They're then sort of bundled up and sold to these sort of massive mortgage intermediaries, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the sort of government um, guarantors who got into trouble in the, in the global financial crisis. Um, and they then issue them as mortgage backed securities. Again, another thing that you'll recognize from the global financial crisis. Um, and so those mortgages, that rocket mortgage issues are ultimately held by investors. They're held by capital markets, you know, pension funds, mutual funds, those kinds of people in the end. So if you, you know, you can definitely get a lot of disruption of, of, um, the provision of lending and who gets to decide who gets a loan. In terms of who holds that loan, you know, it either needs to be a bank or you need to find some way to funnel it into capital markets.
0: Alice, talk to me about the dollar. Uh, you had this essay on hegemony, you called it, Digital Money May Pose a New Threat to <laughs> Dollar Hegemony. And let me quote from it. You say, the dollar is pervasive because everyone uses it as their unit of account. Oil is invoiced in dollars. Most global trade is paid for in dollars. Most cross-border financial contracts are in dollars. Global travelers keep $100 bills in their socks. Financial markets and trade have grown faster than the global economy for decades, making the dollar even more dominant. This gives America a clout it exploits through its use of sanctions, as well as unrivaled insight into global finance. It begs the question why you aren't seeing other countries kind of block together, uh, I don't know, with a regional... DigiCoin or something that's, uh, I guess, accepted across Latin America, or uh, the way you saw with the euro, which has had its own misadventures, but is is digitally fungible and easily enough, as you illustrate. Let me just make this other illustration here. You know, you illustrate the situation in Turkey when the finance minister was sacked. If if uh, had Facebook's DM been operating when Turkey's president sacked the head of its central bank in March. It would have been easy for millions of Turks to move their money into dollars or euros. It might also have been possible for businesses to start showing QR codes to accept dollars. So on the one hand, the dollar is indispensable. On the other hand, there are people who cannot wait to kind of throw off this yoke of, of hegemony. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, you know, the way that monetary systems work now is that they, they're sort of um, bounded by, for the most part, nation states. The euro is an mm-hmm. exception to that. It's bounded by the currency area. But, you know, most countries have their own currency and um, there's a sort of moat around them operating that, which is, you know, you have local banks and uh, local bank accounts and your own and they all operate in the currency that you tell them to as the central bank, basically. And um, and so there's a lot of control that the central bank has over which currencies are used and the institutions that sort of create and, um, uh, you know, provide financial services. To an economy, but this sort of future that we've we've talked about where everything is digital and it being digital makes it sort of seamless and frictionless does you know potentially get us closer to a world in which it's much much harder for you know countries with currencies that aren't the stablest or safest or whatever to maintain mm. their own their own sort of control over it, and so this actually is one of the sort of primary motivators um for China, um, you know, they had their, their sort of central bank digital currency, SAR, was quoted at an, uh, an event recently saying that, you know, our oh, number one priority is that no country issues a digital currency that impinges on another country's ability to sort of maintain its monetary system. So they, I mean, they, they have these huge private tech companies within China, and then they have the specter of something like DM. And, you know, if you were a Chinese person and you wanted some method of of payments that wasn't sort of overseen and watched by the chinese government then using something like dm might be might be sort of very appealing for you so and this could work the other way as well like if china wanted to internationalize its currency then being the first person to provide the sort of seamless digital money uh, might be one way to do it but i guess it just you know it's very hard to know sort of how these things will sh- will shake out but it it does make it much easier in my view, for people to switch between like nation states currencies at home. So because you don't need to get sort of stockpiles of physical bills anymore, you can just sort of s- flick a switch on, on an app on your phone, um, if you want to start using a different currency. And and that is something that sort of really scares central banks, scares the the Chinese government. Um And but also Doesn't you know, the
0: Chinese government control all social media in and out of China already, they have their they have their their thumbs on the pipes. It's not like they could they could just use the blunt instrument and shut down the internet outright.
1: yeah they do i mean i'm it's not I would never sort of um claim that the their sort of methods of surveillance or control are going to be outsmarted by some sort of digital innovation necessarily but um you know the way that they maintain that control is by sort of trying to stay ahead of the curve of any of these things that might disrupt it, I guess, and so that's mm. why they have been basically the first country apart from the Bahamas. Uh, who beat them to it, to issue this sort of central bank digital currency system, these sort of new central bank money, which they're sort of hoping people will use either in addition to or instead of the either a sort of Alipay or WeChat Pay payments function or a potentially a foreign one.
0: Alice Fulwood, in the few minutes we have left with you, I you know, at some point, I you know, if you're vaccinated, we're going to be going back to cocktail mm-hmm. parties. And I imagine you're going to get buttonholed about Dogecoin and Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I don't even know if you have a thirty-second explanation of what these guys are. They're such a roar shark to some people. They're an escape from fiat economy. You know, I can go to Miami and all sorts of tech bros who don't even know what they're talking about who can lecture me for thirty minutes on the importance of the blockchain. Uh, I don't see the pressing need for these currencies, maybe outside of opting out of, uh, for example, a dollar or a euro that is far removed from its original. Uh, value that was tied, let's say, to gold or something hard in terms of specie. What what are you going to answer? What are you going to tell people when they're talking about 20,000% returns on these things, about Tesla suddenly accepting it, about it being entered into the the, the writing of, of Saturday Night Live when Elon Musk hosted? I mean, I, I can't imagine. I can't do it for 30 seconds or even 30 minutes.
1: No, I mean, one of the things that sort of writing this special report made me think about was this idea that there is sort of competition between currencies and means of payment. And, mm. you know, although it might sound far-fetched to me that you would want, ever want to replace sort of a, a dollar um, payments mechanism with a with the Bitcoin one, it, it's not impossible. Um, I guess the, the thing that I, I think people tend to get confused about, though, is a lot of these sort of cryptocurrencies are both decentralized and digital, and the decentralization is the whole sort of like anarchist, we don't want the government to be involved. We want it to be at arm's length from central banks and money printers and all that kind of stuff. And the decentralization is very expensive. That's why sort of Bitcoin is so expensive to maintain You know, energy wise. You have to have this network of decentralized miners. It's not very efficient to have things decentralized because it means that you need everyone to agree, not just the centralized sort of authority um but the digital side of them you know they were sort of ahead of the curve in being digital money and you know dogecoin for example um is actually reasonably quick and efficient means of payment that's why it sort of started being adopted as as like tip payments for for some sort of online sites and mm. things so you know it's not that i think that the that these things are totally ridiculous and that you can't use them for anything you know it's a really interesting innovation i don't see the appeal personally of the decentralization because i think it's just so inefficient that it's never going to beat out a centralized system unless something terrible happens to the world but i do see the appeal of the digital and i think that's why you're seeing you know central banks banks all all the people who work within the existing sort of monetary system adopt that aspect
0: of it. Tech change, intangible capital, negative rates, going public, currency wars, a new world. Alice Fullwood's special report on the future of banking and The Economist. It was a great, great issue. Uh, very richly reported, and there's so much to talk about. I really can't cap it off in, in an hour. There's so many different, you know, side legs and everything, and I definitely think you guys should do a a sidebar at some point on <laughs> on the demise of the pickpocket. Alas. We didn't even get into the black market, so I know you're busy with your beat today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly, Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and family. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fulldradio. And hello to our radio listeners in Northern Virginia and Washington DC, out in SoCal, and in the gorgeous mountains of North Carolina. And coming soon, fingers crossed, back across Virginia. Message me if you'd like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.